Want to learn how to see and share Jesus from all the scripture? Learn with us at the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. Welcome to the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. I'm Josh Redberg. I've been filling in for our regular host, Nate Aiken, for a few weeks. Nate will be back with us soon, but today I'm joined again on the podcast by John Aiken and Jared Compton. We're finishing chapter two of Hebrews. Last week, we looked at the promise of restoration through the work of Christ. Today, in verses 10 through 18, the author directs us to more of the blessings that come to us through the redemptive work of Jesus. So Jared, how would you summarize the author's argument in verses 10 through 18? So he he's trying to explain that last verse in 2.9 when he's explained that Jesus was crowned through suffering. So as far as I understand the argument of Hebrews, that would have been a point about the Messiah that would have been uh, controversial, a suffering Messiah. So here in 10 through 18, he's going to use words like fitting or mm-hmm. ophelo, which is it's necessary. I think that's in 2, um, 14 or 15. I'd have to look, but it's fitting. So he's going to try to talk about the fittingness of Jesus suffering. And the fittingness is explained. If he's going to lead many sons and daughters to glory, then yeah. it was fitting for him to identify with them in their humanity and to die in their place and take away the power that death and the devil held over them. Hmm. And he did that through his death, which the author will then call a propitiation in 2.17 and kind of introduce for the first time this idea of priesthood and sacrifice. Yeah, and so this follows a lot on our discussion last week of Psalm 8, right? And and how Jesus, what he says, he he does it not instead of us, um, but he precedes us. He goes before us. Um, John, there's an interesting phrase in verse 10, um, maybe a, one of those phrases that can be confusing when you first read it, um, raise some different questions, but it says that Jesus uh, is made perfect through sufferings. How would you interpret that? How also might you speak against some people who misinterpret that or some wrong teaching that could come from? this verse. Yeah, I think so there's a couple of ways that you that I would probably approach it. So one I would approach it biblically theologically and Jared's already hit on this point. One of the main themes that you have running through the apostles in the New Testament is this idea that the suffering of the Messiah is not only happened but was necessary. Like it had to happen. Jesus says this in Luke 24, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and mm-hmm. then enter into his glory. First Peter 1, when he's talking about what the Old Testament prophets were looking towards and knew, I mean, he mentions the same theme. Like So, that, so, so biblically, theologically, even though for some reason this triumphalistic expectation of the Messiah who never suffered developed within first century Judaism, Jesus rebukes the, the disciples and says, well, you should have seen this. And and you should see this for a yeah. number of reasons. Uh, I mean, David suffered before he ascended to the throne. Um, you, you have all, all kinds of imagery in the Old Testament where it wasn't just a, you know, shock and awe, it's here, there was suffering, and then vindication, <laughs> and then and then glory. Yeah. 
Um, and then I would explain, explain it theologically. I would say, look, we have to, as we said, we said before, you've got to let um, clearer text help us understand more difficult text or clearer statements. So when we say that, that, that Christ was made perfect through suffering, we're not saying that he was imperfect before or that he was somehow mm-hmm. sinful or that there was something lacking in him um, in terms of his, uh, in terms of his being who he is. Okay. Um, yeah. I think this is, this is more talking about, you can use the word he was made complete through suffering or his, his work was complete through suffering. So it's more talking about the work. He is the son of God. He is perfect. You know, even before the, the incarnation, nothing that's lacking, but he did have a mission to fulfill, which was the mission of redemption. The father had given him. And the only way that that was going to happen is by tasting death on behalf of the people that he was redeeming. And we'll, we'll talk more about this. Um, you know, as we go through the passage, but I think about the, the, I think it's the Cappadocian fathers who said that which is unassumed is unhealed. So he, so he has to take on human flesh and then he has to take, taste death for his, his brothers that he, his brothers and sisters that he's redeeming in order to do that. So that's, he's perfected, he's perfected through suffering in terms of the work of redemption that he's accomplishing. Yeah. Jared, anything you'd add to that? I mean, I thought that was really helpful. I think if you even think of perfection, the language itself is related to bringing something to its end. Mm-hmm. So it's telos. So there was a telos, a like uh, John said, an end that Jesus, uh, God had destined for Jesus. And that was to be a redeeming representative priest. And to reach that end, there were necessary. Um, qualifying steps so suffering was the big one of those he had to become incarnate of course he had to live uh perfectly but the idea of suffering uh obediently sacrificially was one of the steps on the way to his being completed or we could might say fit for the job Mm -hmm. that god had given him so this is this is continuing to build off that those previous verses and the argument there about the the work of Jesus in leading us, and it seems to be part of why he uses that phrase in verse ten um, about Jesus being the pioneer of their salvation. Mm-hmm. How does this sort of build off that? How does this help us understand uh, not just what we've talked about so far in Hebrews, but even what's coming up in Hebrews? This this concept of him being the pioneer mm-hmm. of our salvation. Mm-hmm. So I would say pioneer is such a special. Uh, picture. So I think of it as there was this brand new place God wanted to live with human beings. Hebrews calls it the world to come in 2.5. And we couldn't get there. There was a barrier between the worlds, you could say. And in order to uh, get there, you had to pierce the barrier of sin and unholiness and impurity. And somehow, make it into the world to come. So I think of pioneering language, like Jesus uh, died and rose and almost like a rocket kind of just shot through the atmosphere and mm-hmm. blazed the trail into the world to come and opened it up kind of like Joshua does the land of Canaan. He mm-hmm. was perfect. He was able to um, go through the barrier of, of human sin because he expunged it with his death. 
And so he's like this trailblazing new planet world explorer. And he goes into that new world to come. And then he's like, all right, guys, I'm going to lead many of you here. You know, 210, I'm going to lead, I'm going to draw you kind of inexorably like a big uh, chain or rope. And he's just pulling on the thing, just pulling us up to that new world to come because he's blazed the trail. So pioneering language will show up again in chapter 12 and kind of those familiar verses of looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter. So that language of perfection shows up again right alongside of pioneer. And there it's the same idea of he's, he's got there first. And like we said, he not instead of us, but ahead of us. And then he's perfecting. He's making sure he's guaranteeing that he's not going to be alone. He's going to yeah. populate that place with other sons and daughters, children of Abraham. So there's an assurance that the language of pioneer, that place that God promised is now occupied by a human representative, which is good news. Yeah. So it would be fair to say he's the Daniel Boone yeah, of our right. salvation. Right. For, our, right. our, for our American listeners, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, for our yeah, for our European listeners, don't worry about that. Let's stick with Pioneer. We can explain Daniel Boone on another episode for sure. <laughs> That's right. So, John, it's interesting that one of the one of the points he's pressing into with this language is that we are brothers and sisters of Jesus. So it's not just that he's a pioneer in the sense of, okay, Daniel Boone, somebody out there at some point did this. It's like the person who did this is actually your brother. Or you know, you're a brother or sister to him. So why why this connection? What's he doing with this? Like, why does he use so much familial sibling language here? Well, I think there's probably a number of reasons, but one I think in particular is that this mention in 16 of the offspring of Abraham. I think he's he's trying to link us with again this this family that of Abraham that was going to be blessed and um, you know, blessed to be a blessing and, and all of these different things is it's not really based on DNA. It's not, it's not based on bloodlines. It's based on Jesus yeah. who is, you know, as, as we, we made those distinctions in one of the last podcasts about, is this about Jesus or is this about us? And it's like, yeah, the offspring of Abraham, clearly Galatians three is Jesus but also everybody who's in Jesus is is also part of the offspring and so so I think he's it, that that whole that that being part of the family of God um and so how does that happen well it happens through him tasting death death for us being the being the pioneer going through the veil on our behalf all, all of those different things and so I I think that's part of what he's doing with this uh, we would assume a, a Jewish audience or at least an old covenant believing audience that mm-hmm. um this is what it means to be part of the family of Abraham. Yeah. Jared, pastorally, that phrase in verse 11, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. How might you sort of press into that pastorally a little Mm -hmm. bit? It's such a beautifully rich and sweet phrase. Yeah, isn't it? The fact that Jesus, I mean, where else do you see this language of he's calling us his family? We talk about God is our father, and since uh, Hebrews sort of became a part of my life. I now think about and talk about Jesus as my brother. Now mm. I know we've get the language in verse thirteen of we're his children as well, so it's kind of a jarring. But I'm happy here to just sit in the fact that 
He's calling us family. He's calling us brothers, his kin. Mm -hmm. And he's saying he's not ashamed to do that. The way I understand this, and I think the pastoral uh, utility of this is, I think what Jesus is saying is, there's a plan God has to save human beings. This is what he refers to in 2.11 of, we are all of the same family. I kind of prefer to say we're all of one purpose. Greek is ex henos, of one. We're all of one. And Jesus is saying, look, I have done and run my race, and I was vindicated, and God brought me into the world to come. Now, I'm not ashamed to look at my brothers and sisters in the eye and say, you know what? What God has promised to you, he'll do it. I'm not ashamed Mm -hmm. to call you family. God's going to lead you to the same thing that he's led me to. It's it's a statement of uh, less his... uh, shame, potential shame in calling us, Ken, but more looking at us in the eye and say, we can trust dad. We can trust our father. He's going to do this thing he promised. Let me, let me add one thing too, because I, I, it's okay. The Bible does mix metaphors. Um, It happens, right? Jesus is both the great shepherd and he's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews is going to tell us he's the high priest and the sacrifice, right? So it, so it, he, he mixes the metaphors, but why it's, to me, it's applicationally rich here is there's both transcendence and eminence here, right? So he is our, he is our father. We are his children. He has a position of authority over us. And yet he also is not ashamed to call us brothers. And so there's a, there's a, there's a, he's one of us. Um, and so, th- yeah. so both are there and both, uh, to me are both are, um, encouraging and comforting uh, because he's mm-hmm. he, as a father, he's overseeing us. Yeah, we'll see later discipline, all those different things. But he's he's protecting us. He's he's overseeing us. Uh, but also, he's one of us. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of those things. So, so I think it, the, both of those images that we see throughout Scripture are incredibly uh, comforting. And I yeah. I would add one more thing, if I might may. Uh, that idea in verse thirteen, I will put my trust in Him. That's Jesus talking about believing in the Father's promise. So I think there's also a sense here, Jesus experienced the life of faith, and he was rewarded. He believed, God, you'll do what you say you'll do, and God has. And now in verse 12, quoting from Psalm 22, like the psalmist, he's looking back at the community and saying, God has rescued me. I thought I was God forsaken, but I held on Mm -hmm. to God, and he vindicated me. He's going to do the same thing for you. I just experienced it. Like he's talking, it's like a, it's like a personal testimony. I'm not ashamed to say God's going to fulfill the purposes that he has for our family. Mm -hmm. And I think that's extraordinarily comforting. We have somebody who's tested and proven God's faithfulness, Jesus. Somebody's Mm -hmm. been there, done it and showed that it is indeed possible. God will fulfill his word. Yeah. That's so encouraging. John, it's interesting here, these quotes from Psalms and Isaiah, that they're actually put in the mouth of Jesus, right? This is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, so these quotes are put in the mouth of Jesus. How does this help us interpret and understand inspiration, the Old Testament, the Christ-centered nature of things? Is this significant? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I I think that I mean sometimes we'll say things like the the Psalms were Jesus' hymn book, right? So that so this, these are songs hmm. that he would have sung, 
um, you know, s- songs that as he went up to the temple or whatever that he that he would have sung. But but we all also know, as we've talked about at length from the introduction of the Psalter in Psalm one and two, that it's all in some ways cast with this hope and this expectation of this messianic ruler who's going to come and be established in Zion. But I, I do think it's I think it's helpful, and 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 I want to keep. Um, Jared's uh, caution that he gave us, whether it was last episode or two episodes ago, of only seeing this about being about Jesus, mm-hmm. right? This is this is Jesus' experience, and then and then in Christ, obviously these are also our. We are to sing these and yeah. and worship God uh, in these ways. So I don't want to see it as only about Jesus, but but yes, I think it's significant. And again, that's why I just say this just briefly. That's why they should have seen the necessary mm-hmm. suffering before the vindication, because there's a lot of work being done on the composition of the Psalter and talking about how the first book of the Psalter is, is, is really telling the story of David's rise to power through suffering. Um, and so he just, mm-hmm. as we just laid out, I, I went through these things and then I was vindicated and then I was established in Zion and he did this for me and I put my trust in him and, and this happened for me. So now this will happen for you. You can, you can trust that it will happen for you. So I, I do think it's incredibly significant to help us know that the psalm book, that the psalm is a book about Jesus, but it's also a book about us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the benefits here of the work of Jesus, particularly through his death, is it says it delivers us from the, the fear of death, but it says the one holding the power of death is the devil. So Jared, how would you handle that? Because we think of the sovereignty of God. You know, is God being the one? I, I'm teaching through Ecclesiastes in my church right now, and it makes it clear that death is in God's hands. Mm-hmm. Yet here it says the one holding the power of death is the devil. How would you handle that potential or seeming contradiction or that question in people's mind? Yeah, that is a really great question. And I love that Hebrews addresses it. The effect that Jesus' death has on the devil is an issue we see Colossians 2 talks about it, hmm. uh, yeah. which is a key, if your listeners co- want to kind of jot in the margin of Hebrews 2, Colossians 2, I think it's like 15 to 17. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a key sort of parallel text. Or I even think of Revelation 1, where you've got the vision of the Son of Man who has wrestled the keys of death and hell from the devil himself. So I think the, the point the author is making and uh, the early Christians made was, the devil has a claim over sinners. God says the soul that sins shall die. The devil loves that claim of justice and says, those who sin, they're mine. They belong to me. I, I'm their Lord. And so when Jesus died, he took away, this is Colossians language now, he took that certificate of debt that we owed. Mm-hmm. We owed our sin Uh, leads to death, and devil's the Lord of death, and he nailed that certificate of all of our wrongdoing to the cross, and thus freed us from the devil's claim over us. The devil has no claim over people whose sins are forgiven. So in that sense, the devil is simply kind of leveraging God's own justice against human beings, and Jesus surprises the devil by at his apparently worst moment, defeating the devil at his own game, wrestles the keys of death and hell from him and jangles them now kind of victoriously. Like, I got it. I hold the keys in my hand. Uh, You're no longer subject to death's tyranny because I have 
exonerated you. So I think that's a kind of a, yeah. a thing we should really press in pastorally. The devil's claim over believers has been exhausted. He has no claim yeah. over us. He's the defeated foe. And Colossians will even use the language of Jesus embarrassed him at the cross, which is it reminds fantastic. Me, it reminds me of that um, scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right, where Aslan sacrifices himself because the law, which is not something the White Witch was, was sovereign over in any sense, yeah. but under that law, mm-hmm. she then had the right to you know, to torture and harm and ultimately execute him, mm-hmm. right? But it's that same sense. God is sovereign over these things. The devil doesn't have freedom mm-hmm. except under God's law, th- this, this power he holds in some sense. That's good. For the time being. Yeah, the deeper John, magic about, that Lewis Yeah, the deeper about. magic still. Yeah, yeah, it's good. John, what about the person, I think this fear of death is a real thing for Christians. It says you, you've been set free from it, but I would guess... If there are 200 people sitting in the auditorium and 180 of them are Christians, that 150 of them are still going like, I still sort of fear death. I'm, I'm not excited about it. Mm-hmm. So how might you address this, this statement, which can feel maybe at odds with, can feel at odds with how we feel, mm-hmm. even though mm-hmm. it, it says this so sort of definitively? Yeah, well, one, I do, so one of the things I think is really helpful about this phrase when we're talking about application or just any of our readers who are applying it to themselves is one of the things that you know deep down is that at some level, every human being has fear of death. Um, and so, and we see this in our culture, right? We see this in our culture with the way that um, movie stars, for example, have a, a timed period where when they get past that point, they're not going to be made a leading lady anymore because they're seen as too old or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like our culture yeah. fears death is trying to do everything we can to escape it. Um, and so it's like one, we just know that this is, this is a, an existential crisis for everybody. And so we're, so we're speaking to people where they, where they're, you know, concerned and that's relevant to their lives. But I would say to me, this is one of those instances like we see in the gospels of Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Like it's, it's a, if you're a Christian, then you know, Jesus has defeated death. You know, you know that Satan has no power over you, as we just talked about, you know, that he uses propitiation language. Your, your sin is not being held against you. You know, that death will not be the final word. We know all that. The, 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 the question is, are we going to, are we going to hold on to it? Are we going to believe it in those moments when it, when it's a struggle, um, then we've got to we've got to pray, Lord, help my unbelief. The other thing I think, and I've heard preachers make this distinction before. I can't remember who the, one of the preachers they quoted, who, who said, "I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid to die." Uh, um, yeah. And so that's that's a different yeah. category altogether. Of if somebody's got cancer and they're hurting and and like they just, you know, then that that's something we just pastorally need to say. Ah, we get that. We understand that. That's that's part of you know, part of the curse and those kind of things, but, but it's cancer is not going to have the last word. We know that we're assured of that. And so we're going to hold on to that, but that, yeah, that's how I'd kind of go after that with some folks. Yeah. Jared, this passage ends by um, introducing or reintroducing some themes that will continue to come up in the book of Hebrews. Things we'll continue to talk about as we go through, but the fact that Jesus, because he, because he took on human flesh is able to be a uh, uh, an atonement for mm-hmm. us 
He's able to be a high priest, and he's also able to be a help in the midst of temptation. So give us just, how do these things preview what's coming ahead in the book of Hebrews? Yeah, you're exactly right. It is a preview. Kind of out of nowhere, you get the language of priesthood. So I think this is the first mention of priesthood in Hebrews, which will then become sort of the topic that is the center of the meat and potatoes of Hebrews 5 to 10. So it's a tantalizing little uh, foreshadowing, which Hebrews does over and over and over again, kind of raises something that you will get to later. Um, So priesthood's going to be a big deal, which he'll talk about kind of the center theological argument of his book. But here he just raises it kind of in a preview. Can I say, let me say one thing too, just as we, I know we're going to close out, but theologically, I think one thing that's important here to me about uh, 14 through 18 is theologically people try to have this, these arguments about atonement theory and what did the atonement accomplish and Christus Victor, you know, to defeat the devil or is it substitution or whatever. And I think Hebrews teaches us, and especially here, that, that, Yes, there are different aspects of the atonement, but but it it is only through substitutionary atonement, only through propitiation, that the devil is defeated. Um, yeah. And we see this yeah. in Scripture. For example, I, like one passage that I think people think about a lot is in First Samuel four and five, when the ark is captured by the Philistines, and literally the language is that the ark goes into exile, which is the which is the judgment that was promised to the people for their idolatry. And yet God, the representation of God goes into exile and then he smashes Dagon to pieces. And so it's through, through Christ taking on the, the wrath of God that he actually defeats the devil. And so while I think we can talk about the different aspects of the atonement, that, that one I feel like biblically in Hebrews is, is central to all of those other things that happen that are, that are an encouragement to us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. At the heart of this book is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, Jared, we have enjoyed having you as our guest for chapter two, and we hope to have you back on a future chapter as we continue to work through the book of Hebrews together. Thank you for listening to the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. Join us next week as we see how Jesus is the true and better Moses. Thank you for listening to the Christ Center and Clear podcast. If you have questions, topics, or texts that you'd like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at podcast at ChristCenteredAndClear.com. And please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources that will help you see and share Jesus from all of Scripture. Scripture.